Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. In March, on a cold winter day in 2008, I raised my right hand and was about to take the oath of office to join the Iowa Army National Guard. Before I could do that, my recruiter turned to my mom and said, is it okay if Dan joins the Army? (laughs) Now, this was a bit of an odd question because at the time, my mom was 82 (laughs) and I was 57. So my mom said, sure, it's okay if he joins the Army as long as he doesn't play with guns or go to war. My recruiter said, no problem. Just write a letter and send it to General Orr. Now maybe you're wondering, why would a guy who's 57 years old want to join the Army? Had I gone middle-aged crazy? No. What it was had to do a lot with September 11th. I was at work that day at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics and gathered in front of a TV with a bunch of my nursing friends and we watched the towers fall down. In my mind, that day was my generation's Pearl Harbor. At the same time, I'd been following the headlines about the number of soldiers who were committing suicide after coming home from war. And coincidentally, one of the psychiatric residents who was my friend told me that the Army Guard was looking for social workers and he thought I would be a good fit. I didn't disagree with him. So there I was with my right hand raised, swearing to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And just like that, I was Lieutenant Dan. Lieutenant Dan. It was, a, it was a very important day for me because it represented a big change in my life. Now, you have to think back to the early 1970s. I was a long-haired hippie. <laughs> long-haired hippie. Back in the 70s, I was very much against the war in Vietnam. I was never against soldiers because I thought they were just doing what they needed to do to get by but I was against the war. Some of you may remember that President Nixon came to Des Moines about that time to speak to the Iowa legislature. Well, I was there out in the mix with the rest of the protesters, making my thoughts known. So now you have to picture the young me watching the old me go off to officer's basic training at Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio, Texas. And there, for the first time, I shot a rifle, I shot a pistol, put on my tear gas mask, and was tear gassed. I hope that doesn't happen again. As as the end of basic training came close, it seemed to me like it was time to put on my uniform and go down to the Alamo and pay respects to Davy Crockett and the rest of them who gave their lives that day. 
Then I went next door to the Menger Hotel and had a beer and a burger in the same place where Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders hung out. Now you need to remember, when I put on my uniform, I always stand taller and have better posture. Uniform does that to you. Next stop was Camp Shelby in Mississippi for further training before going to Afghanistan. At Camp Shelby, I lived with a bunch of kids. Now, kids is what I called the young soldiers in my company, and it didn't take me long to begin to worry about those kids. I thought maybe they were the slackers that you know the media was sort of describing at that point in time. And as I thought about it, you know, I looked at the other kids and decided that, you know, maybe they're all the same. Maybe they're all the same. Those kids all listened to rap music all the time. They all played video games as much as they could. And they all, you know, just did what they were gonna do. Now, they called everybody else and themselves, dude or bro. <laughs> now the exception was when they had to, when they talked to me, they had to call me sir dude. <laughs> now these kids would complain to me about running the two miles for the army fitness test. Now at that time I was 60 years old and I could beat the lot of them, no problem. Before going to Afghanistan, I was promoted to Captain Dan and learned that I would be running a combat stress clinic at Bagram Airfield. On the way to Bagram, I remembered that Afghanistan was known for its beautiful mountains. As we got closer to Bagram, you couldn't see any of the mountains because of the smog. When I got off the plane at Bagram Air Base, I said to myself, what's that smell? It was worse than Cedar Rapids on a hot, sunny day. <laughs> I'm sorry, Cedar Rapids. I know you're trying to clean up your act. On the fourth day we were at Bagram, the sirens went off and a voice came over the loudspeaker system telling us that we were under a rocket attack, that we needed shelter in place and put on our protective gear. Now you know, as soon as those sirens stopped, what Iowans do. We all ran outside <laughs> to look for the rockets. It was just like sitting at home on the porch looking for the tornadoes. <laughs> a couple months later, I was transferred to a forward operating base that was out in the middle of, the no, of nowhere in the desert. The place's name was Metterlam. A normal day in Metterlam, it got to be about 120 degrees. Normal day. A Metterlam, for our protection, was surrounded by these big 10-foot-tall sandbags. And that was supposed to protect us from when the enemy shot at us, which they did every once in a while. At Metterlam, the, the days kind of blended together and pretty soon it was hard to remember what day of the week it was. It didn't matter because we worked every day. 
Now, if you want to get a better idea of what Mederlam is like, travel back in your mind to the Wild West. Think about those old army forts from the movies. That's kind of what Mederlam was like. Now, in April of 2011, I got a call to go to the Troop Operations Center. There'd been a bombing at a nearby base named Gambari. When I got the operations center, there was a live feed coming in from a blimp that hovers over Gambari. And what we could see was the aftermath of a bombing. There were patterns in the sand and broken glass, but there weren't a lot of people around because it had been a couple hours before. You can only imagine what the chaos had been that morning. I knew that I had to get to Gambari as quickly as possible. What I didn't know was how many people had been killed, or if anybody had been killed, and I didn't know if anybody had been wounded. And more importantly to me, many of my friends worked at Gambari, and I didn't know their status either. So I booked a helicopter for the short flight to Gambari, and I, I knew it was going to take me a couple days to get there. Once I got there, I was going to do what's called a critical incident debriefing. That meant that I was going to talk to the soldiers who were in the room where the bomb went off. I was going to talk to the soldiers who ran toward the room where the bomb went off. And I was going to talk to the medics who treated the wounded. Now, here's what happened. Every Saturday morning, there's a meeting with the Nash Afghan National Army and with US soldiers. At this particular meeting, a person dressed in an Afghan National Army uniform walked into the meeting and set off a suicide vest. He killed seven people immediately, and there were a lot wounded. So I talked to the medics who were in that room, and they told me that despite being wounded and having their eardrums blown out, their first instinct was to go treat somebody who was hurt worse than me. And that's what they did. Now, the soldiers who ran towards that explosion had a similar attitude. Their thought was, somebody needs help over there. Doesn't matter whether I'm safe or not, that's where I'm going. Now, the medics in the clinic were all my friends. And that morning, they had heard the explosion. And the next thing that happened was the ambulances started rolling up. And they were quickly overrun with patients. Now, we had trained for that, so they were ready. The kids that day, in my mind, grew up. They were no longer slackers. They proved that they could do their job when they were under pressure. In fact, those kids are just like me. They joined the Army, put their lives on hold, left Iowa, and went someplace where they didn't know anybody to help out. Now, when I think about why I put on their uniform, a couple things come to mind. Number one, it was to show respect to those soldiers. Secondly, it was so that I could get some respect back. Had I not had the uniform on, I would have not been credible to them. Now, war changes everybody. I certainly was affected by that war, and so was everybody else that I was talking to. Secondly, it's sometimes hard to explain an adventure like this to people who weren't there. You know, I can't tell you what words I can use to better explain that. Sometimes war 
changes brain chemistry. That's what the scientists tell us. In a war zone, you have to have that switch on that keeps you safe at all times. Sometimes it's hard to turn that switch off. Now, when I talk to those soldiers during the critical incident debriefings, I talk to them about a couple of things. Number one was, you need to focus on what's going on today. Focus on what life gives you today. What happened yesterday is over. No matter how much you'd like to change that, you can't. You gotta focus on today because you gotta stay safe. Secondly, sometimes the bad guys win. But in the long run, we're gonna prevail. Now you may be wondering what happened to the kids. I've kept track of them over time. They've all grown up now. They've gone to college, got their bachelor's degrees. Some have gone on for advanced degrees. Some have gotten married and some have started families. These are exactly the kind of people that if you're an employer, you would want to hire. And the kids are still playing video games. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>